everyone, and welcome to the Fear at the Top podcast. As you may already be able to tell, we're doing things a little differently this time. My name is Poppy Reed. I'm managing editor at The Brag Media, and for the first time, I'm here with Luke Gerges, CEO of The Brag Media, having a crack at co-hosting Fear at the Top. Our guest today was actually the very first guest we ever hosted when we launched a podcast for the Industry Observer back in 2017. And I'm so excited to welcome him back to the mic. We are here with Dean Ormston, the CEO of APRA AMCOS. Thanks, Poppy. Thanks, Luke. Now, we're speaking to you following what has been a devastating year for Australian music. Our music industry has been severely impacted by COVID-19 and APRA AMCOS as an organisation was no different either. So you announced the year in review financial results in October that APRA AMCOS group revenue was down 14.4 million on the budgeted figure and that the music industry is expected to take a more substantial hit in 2021, especially with public performance royalties. So is it safe to assume that APRA AMCOS has big concerns going into this year? Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and what you said uh, still holds true. What we uh, saw happening when things fell off a cliff in March, uh, what we weren't sure about was uh, what was going to be the extent of that impact. As you said, it turned out to be around $14 million in the last financial year. Uh, which, to give you context, took us from a projected budget of 488 million, uh, sub less 14 million. And then coming into this financial year, uh, our forecast based on what we thought might happen with COVID meant that we put forward to the board a revised budget for the year uh, of 450 million. So a further $20 million drop of what we had experienced in the last financial year. But if you're talking about what would have happened if COVID hadn't happened, we were actually forecasting in this financial year revenue of about $520 million. So mm-hmm. from our perspective, it's COVID's actually causing a drop of about $70 million in this financial year. So it's a big drop. And of course, that's money not in the pockets of our members. That's massive. Then you across uh, the current inquiry that's happening in the UK? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just for people listening, can you help explain what's happening over there in the UK and what's your take on it and how closely is APRA watching that? Uh, look, you know, it's it's about the value chain in the music industry and um, about the value proposition primarily in streaming and what that means as a return to artists. So the inquiry in terms of where it's up to at the moment is listening from all listening to all those stakeholders and getting the, the view of all those stakeholders. And included in that conversation is um, uh, how large is the pie, so to speak, and then how is the how is the pie split? And when I say how large is the pie, then you're looking to what what is um, being received by the music industry from providers of music, so the, the digital service providers, etc. And it's largely the DSP, so you Spotify, Apple Music, all of that. It's yeah. it's about how that the money that is made from those streaming services and how they're being split between record label artists and songwriters. So, right? Yeah, that's right. And then of course there's the newer emergence into those markets, um, the TikToks of the world, so the the social media platforms that have, you know, um, created a, a major platform for, for music in ways that might not have been expected. So it's, it's the conversation around all of that and really it comes from questions around what's the sustainability of the industry. If you're an artist, how do you actually make a dollar? So... It's uh, from my perspective, when you're looking at the inquiry, that's really the question you're trying to address. And uh, I, I would say um, it, it's a bit early for me to make much more of a comment because all of that's being heard at the moment and it's very interesting to hear what different mm. parties will say and everyone has their own position, obviously. It's really interesting when you think about, um, you know, the cost of distributing music pre-streaming, you know, there was warehousing, there was manufacturing, there was... Um, retail logistics and there was all of this like nonsense in costs distributing like any any product uh distributing music and now there is very little cost in terms of distributing music um the record labels are taking their slice the artists are taking their slice and it seems like everyone has seen an uplift in in revenue from this new efficiency in distributing music except for songwriters do you think that's a fair statement yeah, I think the piece you've got to, got to add into that discussion is 
the sheer volume of music that's being listened to. So um, in the physical market and in that context, the world was not listening to the breadth of music it is listening to now. So you do have to bring that into the conversation because whatever value you put on music as a proposition, it's now being subdivided uh, across across an enormous repertoire of music. So, you know, one argument might have been, well, does that mean you should value a song at a particular amount of money? And so, therefore, the song always gets what the song always gets. But in a commercial context, that's probably not going to work because your average punter is probably not going to want to pay that. Uh, So we find ourselves in a world that is primarily being driven in a subscription uh, in a scrip- subscription sort of format, which means there's X amount of dollars irrespective of how much music is being listened to. And you're dividing, you know, this massive amount of music into quite a defined, arguably restricted pot of money. Um, my personal view is we should continue to keep our eye on what is the pie and the size of the pie and what should the digital service providers and, and the platforms be paying Um and be careful about the infighting in relation to who gets what in that pie. Uh, I say that against the backdrop, though, of I think the songwriter has always been undervalued historically in the physical world and now also in the digital world. And Do we you think s- more so now in the digital world? Um, I think in the digital world, uh, and there will be people probably listening who may not agree or Uh, come from a different perspective, but I think in the digital world, if we look at the percentages that we get um, in in our licence license fees with the digital services, the licence fee is higher than what we would get proportionally from a broadcaster, for instance. But again, you go back to the equation of how much music is being broadcast against the revenue you're collecting, so the royalty rate is much higher than what happens in the streaming context. So if you're just looking at percentages and value, which is where we start the proposition, where we say to the streaming service, we think the value of music is this, the percentage is higher than what exists in the broadcast space. Mm. Are you watching these this UK in- inquiry and have you sort of like whiteboarded up a bit of a battle plan where what you're going to do in the market if this, you know, if one result happens in the UK or another result happens and how you're going to sort of react and pounce or how are you sort of thinking and strategizing about what's That's happening there. That's a bit strong. The, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, look, you know, they, they are slightly different paradigms. Um, so, uh, no, it's probably, to be honest with you, more about looking, observing what's happening in that space and what conversations are relevant in our context here because not all of it is relevant. Um, but certainly, you know, you've got the big players in, the, in that inquiry. So, of course, it's of great interest for us to follow those conversations, hear what people are saying, what's being said between the lines. Um, and and it, it will inform, obviously, the sorts of things that will happen in this territory. But we also have our own relationships, strong, positive relationships with the platforms in this territory. And uh, so you can't always say what's happening in the overseas context is relevant in this context. Mm-hmm. And I guess when those conversations are being had and um, potentially you're advocating for change either within the music industry or broader. Um, the two biggest bodies that come to mind are yourselves with APRA and then ARIA. So how, where do your interests align or conflict with APRA, um, both within the industry and outside of? With ARIA. With ARIA. Yeah. yeah yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I, I would say to you without hesitation that in relation to the work we do with government, so if you're talking about copyright per se as a, as a threshold issue and, and the framework and element that gives us the ability to pursue any value, we're on the same page in terms of the record industry and the writer publishing industry saying to government, our copyright's really important. And we've got an issue at the moment we're advocating to government uh, around authorisation, which you know, in a big picture sense means when a platform comes into this territory, and by a platform in this case, I mean a platform that does many things. So um, it may not see itself as being primarily about music. But like we, TikTok? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. we say, well, hang on, music's a key part of that, so you need a licence from us. Mm-hmm. And the labels would say the same thing. 
what we don't want to do is spend two years arguing about whether or not they need a license. It's clear they are authorising what's on their platform. They're allowing those performances to, to occur. So the discussion should really be immediately cutting to what's the value and let's get into a commercial negotiation. And we're big enough and ugly enough to fight our, you know, fight our own sort of fights in that regard. And so ARIA, When you say we, are you saying APRA? I'm or? saying APRA. Yep, cool. And separately, the labels. Yeah. So and is that what happened? Did you, was it a two-year battle with TikTok? It's, I use that as a loose example, but I can say to you that historically with those um, user-generated platforms that have come into this market, uh, it has taken some time to get parties to the table. And then it can be a bit like negotiating with one arm behind your back mm. to get them to agree they need a, a license in this territory. Um, and then to start talking about what's the value of that kind of what, what leverage do you have? Like if TikTok tell you to get fucked and say we're not going to pay you, like what's your next move? It's We could take legal action and try and prove that they are authorising those performances. So, But that's, you know, that's big. That's, you're going to spend a lot of your members' money having that battle and we shouldn't have to because there are precedents in the physical world. In the physical world, the Enmore Theatre, or people that put on live music are authorising those performances uh, and they take out a licence. So we say to the government, we've said most recently, what happens in the physical world is really clear. You just need to make it really clear in the digital world that these people similarly need a licence. So in that regard, ARIA and ourselves have been off to government to lobby around authorisation. So at that top copyright level, we're all arm in arm, hand in hand. And that would go for most of the big picture issues that we're dealing with. It's no surprise, and it shouldn't be, that when it comes to the value within the pie, how you subdivide and the value of a sound recording versus the value of the performance, there might be disagreement in that. And that's fine. You know, we've had those debates in the past. Do you feel like those internal disagreements have slowed down or lessened the impact you've had um, at, at the government level because... Like have like where you guys disagree internally, has that then made it feel too divided and too confusing to be fully aligned when you go to government? I would say to you completely the opposite. I think, um, and this is I pay credit to Dan Rosen, and uh, you know we've enjoyed a great relationship with Aria, and I've personally very much enjoyed working with Dan, where we were really clear on what our ask of government was, and so we would do all of that working out behind the scenes to say we we might have nuanced difference, uh, different opinions on some elements, but we are clear about the importance of live music, of copyright, of local content, et cetera, et cetera, a whole range of issues. And it's really important when you go to government that you do what other industries do, the mining industry. You go and you go, we're the mining industry, we want A, B and C. You don't get subdivided down into which part of mining and what are the different views of mining. And that's a learning for us. As a music industry, you go and you go, we are here, we speak as one, and here are our asks, and they're clear, and let's get it, Let's get on with it. And do the, what's your initial feeling from government at the moment? Do you feel like they care and they understand the importance, or are they, they as, confused as, as confused or disinterested as a lot of people? Uh, I think in March, April last year, we had a bit of a win, and I, I wouldn't talk it up too much, but I did, I'd say it's a win, and that was to hear the Prime Minister refer to us as an industry which we'd never heard before. You know, the music industry is an industry. Once you've got that language coming in from the Prime Minister and ministers acknowledging your industry, a whole lot of things then just follow suit to say, well, like every other industry, we need to look at how do changes in policy around small business, for instance, affect our industry. So uh, I would say to have the Prime Minister and the Treasurer in particular lean in last year when we, we wrote an open letter we had the breadth of the industry sign that open letter, was enormously important and it, it changed the ground a little bit. Um, what I think we need to do very strongly is pick up on that and run with it this year. You know, we will be in an election cycle very, very soon. Um, we put out a media release yesterday around the huge anxiety in our industry and the end to JobKeeper, and we are saying to government, you need to extend JobKeeper for the live and event industry. Um, so it's about um, dealing with government in a way that it understands and it understands industry and then it's incumbent on us to say, well, here's the aspects of our industry you need to understand. So my personal sort of view has been you don't go to government and whinge, you go to government, you explain the problem and you have the solution and you make it as simple as possible. 
Mm. I'm going to ask you one more question and I'll throw it to Poppy. Um, but I've heard you talk a lot about you You want Australia to be a net exporter of music. What does that actually mean? I've had someone say you're on drugs and you won't live long enough for <laughs> that to ever happen. Um, if it means what I think it means, <laughs> I fucking love it, but I just want to hear it from you. It, it means... Um, it, does, it means a couple of things. Um, but when we say net exporter, what we're actually saying is that we are selling more than we're buying. So the same as any other industry, if we, if we had a car industry that you're selling more cars than you're buying. So the money is uh, coming into the country rather than going out. So crudely, that's what I would mean by being a net exporter of music. And, you know, I'm, I'm nearly tired of hearing myself say this, but there's currently three net exporting music nations in the world. There's the US, the UK and Sweden. And uh, Sweden has a long history of pop writers primarily who've been churning out the hits for artists all around the world. And when we look at Sweden as a geographically isolated country uh, of eight, 8 million people, we go, well, surely it's not such a big thing for us to similarly have a goal that says we could be a net exporter and what would you need to do to make that happen? And Jenny Morris summarised it beautifully, I think, in her uh, National Press Club address in August last year where she said, you know, we should set a vision for becoming a net exporter of music. And really, you know, how long is that going to take? Is it two years, ten years? In a sense, what's important is to set the vision and then go, what are the levers that you would need to play with to achieve that? Well, depending on how much effort you put into those levers will probably determine how long it takes. But I, I don't I don't accept for a minute that it's not achievable and I think it should be a question that the breadth of the music industry look at and go, what are we what are we doing in that space to invest locally? Um, was that the same speech where she talked about education yeah. being a key? Yeah. yeah. So we, we looked at and again, you know, this this you know, needs to stand up to cross-examination and further investigation. But when we sort of looked at, um, so what would you need to do to become a net exporter? First thing I sort of thought was, well, education. So what happens in schools now? And, you know, I have the... Uh, you were a music teacher. Uh, yeah, well, that's right, you know. Um, you were there. People may well ask, what? <laughs> did you get thrown out of that job? Why are you not in that job anymore? Uh, but, you know, I loved being a high school music teacher. And, and back then... It was very much driven by a classical curriculum and the kids that did elective music were going to try and get into symphony orchestras and play classical instruments. And there wasn't a lot in the curriculum that catered for the kid coming through who probably would have a career, hopefully, in the contemporary industry. And my, my sort of observation has been through some of the programs that APRA runs, so our Song Makers program in schools, is that there's not a lot there to bridge the gap between high school and the commercial contemporary industry. Uh, and if you did have more in that space and you talked more about songwriting in schools and what comes with songwriting, people would have a greater appreciation of potential careers. At the moment, if you're talking to mum and dad and their kids doing music, they go, well, hopefully they're studying law as well because they probably won't make a dollar as, mm. a, as a musician. But if you talk to people about the intellectual property value of a song, then irrespective of what happens to you as a performing artist, every time that song's played, you earn a royalty. Sweden earns more royalties, music royalties, per head of population than any other country in the world. So it doesn't matter if you're talking about it from a cultural perspective, from an economic perspective, from a social perspective. The vision of becoming a net exporter of music stacks up and I'm going to push really strongly for it. I think it's something that it's a, it's a great thing to put out there. It's, a, it's something that government MPs can get their head around and they will ask the question, so how do we do that? The minute somebody asks how, you've got them on the hook. They're already engaged and you, you, you can work on something. And, and to me, again, it goes back into that space of the music industry has always been fast-moving, agile. It's, it's weathered storms and come out the other side. It was the first content industry to go digital. We're capable of moving fast and being really smart and being global. Uh, so I, I think it's a. I, th I think the potential for Australia and New Zealand, I'd throw into the mix, and obviously I do that because APRA has a presence in New Zealand. But I think there's enormous potential, and you you look at the talent here, and we punch well above our weight. So we should we should leverage it. Are you just looking at APRA Amcos team members over the pond and just searing with jealousy? 
at how amazing it is over there right now for the music industry, how everything's going with Jacinda as their leader. I remember I was lucky enough to go to a music conference over there called, um, I think it was called New Zealand Global or something. Um, And Jacinda came and spoke to launch the music conference. Amazing, firstly. Um, And she actually said that there is, I'm going to obviously butcher it, but I'm paraphrasing where she said um, that there's one thing that we can't actually put into a spreadsheet when we consider the contribution of music, and that's what it does to our well-being. Mm. That's the kind of leader they have over there. She is amazing. She's been to, uh, I'm going to get this wrong, but at least the last four or five Silver Scroll Awards, which is the APRA Awards in New Zealand. She has presented our key awards at that award. She's, She's hugely committed to not just music but the arts, and she understands what it does economically, socially, culturally. Um, so she comes from a position of understanding and she understands the wealth it gives your country and your people and that songs tell your story and travel the world with you or for you. So when you can't be on the other side of the world because of COVID, your song can be and your song tells your story as an individual. It tells your, the story of your home and, and your, your country. Uh, and I think uh, the more people in government that can appreciate that and understand that, the more excited people get. And uh, again, I think the challenge for us as an industry is how do you tell the story in a way that people want to lean in and go, tell, tell me more? And I think that is incumbent on us. And sometimes it's facts and figures and stats. Sometimes it's bringing along an ambassador, one of our APRA ambassadors, to say, hey, you tell your story. What's it like to be a small business person in the music industry, you know, with little help and support, looking after yourself, hoping to get JobKeeper? Um, So, you know, what's it like to be a manager? Um, What do we do in this country to support managers, who I think are an incredibly important part of success? Uh, So, look, I I think, um, yes, the New Zealand Prime Minister is, um, is, is brilliant and wonderful, and we all love Jacinda. But there's something uh, quite exciting about the challenge of Scott Morrison, uh, who who gets the fact that we are an industry, who we've been able to meet with a couple of times, and I can think of previous prime ministers who we couldn't get in to see at all. So you know, um, again, people listening to this might go, "Well, I'm no fan of Scott Morrison's politics," but you've got to um, play the game that's before you, and you have to be agnostic, and you you know, you, you talk to everybody. Absolutely. Don't bite that. Don't bite the hand that is trying to feed you, or that you're trying to get to feed you. <laughs> That's it. Exactly. <laughs> um, can we get under the hood of APRA for a bit? Um, what are the core? Firstly, how does APRA make money? And then, second, what are the core KPIs of APRA? Oh God, this is like a interview. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <for> my job. <laughs> um, so, so. In terms of APRA's remit, it's it's very simple. You know, we are a, a, a member-based association. Sometimes people think we're government and we're set up by somebody else, but we're not. We were set up by songwriters and composers and music publishers to administer certain rights for them. We've been around since 1926, so we're five years off being 100 years old as an organisation. 1926 is when radio started in Australia, so that's why we became relevant. Music was suddenly being exploited uh beyond what a songwriter or composer could control. Uh, Our members assign particular rights to us and we administer those rights locally and globally. What does administer rights mean? So when you wrote a song and you become a member of APRA, you assign your public performance communication rights in that song to us and we then take over collecting, putting licences in place and collecting royalties on your behalf. So rather than you having to go to every nightclub and small business and cinema and um, Spotify and everybody else who you think is using your music, we do that on your behalf. But we do that globally. So when you're picked up on UK radio, our affiliate in the UK, PRS, has a license in place with the radio station. They collect the money, they pay it back to us. So the idea of the collecting societies is to create this global infrastructure where money is collected domestically and then returned to the relevant affiliate association. So that's broadly how it works. And the licences are, are tailored depending on the use of the music and the, the, the value of the licence 
is really um, assessed on a hierarchical basis in the sense of how important is music to that business. So obviously what a nightclub pays us is a lot more than what a hairdresser would pay us. Uh, so that's the basis for the money coming into the business. And um, as I said earlier, you know, we're sort of sitting around the 450 to $500 million mark as a business. Um, so you're Sorry, a, is that gross money in or is that, the, is that your clip of the money that comes in? That's gross money coming in. Yeah. Then, uh, so you've got your members assigning the rights to you. You've got your license revenue coming in the door. We have a range of distribution processes based on where does the money come from, what data can we get in order to work out the distribution. We deduct the running costs of the organisation and that becomes your net distributable revenue. So in any, our expenses fluctuate from year to year. But to give you an idea, we, we look at the range of our expenses sitting in the you know, 12 to 14% range, our overall operating costs. So that includes IT, staff, everything has to fit within that, within that sort of range. And, and obviously the board and our membership keep a very close watch on that. We're very, very um, transparent to our members as an operation. We're subject to a voluntary code of conduct. We're subject to an authorization from the ACCC. So quite rightly, we have a lot of people looking at our operation and, and what we do. Does that mean that at a high level, it's safe to assume that if you are, if you're collecting money that APRA is is giving you as an as a songwriter, about fourteen percent of that revenue is um, being is APRA's fee? Is that right? Yeah, and, and again, it sort of it, that fluctuates, yeah. um, and that's what we call our expense to revenue ratio. So some some parts of our business, no surprise, it's it, it costs you more money to collect. And distribute the money than in other areas, but the overall expense to revenue ratio is between twelve and fourteen percent. COVID context, not great. Obviously, your revenue is massively down. Um, we had to look at our operation last year. We very, very sadly had to let fifty people go. So we're not immune from the commercial realities that's that are happening in the world, and and we similarly have to scale our operation. So then, as a CEO, how are you sort of benchmarking your own success? Uh, look, you know. I would say first and foremost, it's the team you build around you. I mean, I think, you know, uh, nobody can claim success uh, completely in, in what you do. It is the team you put around you. Um, and I think the team I've got is world's best. Um, absolutely. I have no hesitation in saying that. Um, and I think having the world's best team it becomes in incredibly important when you've got a crisis like COVID or before that the bushfires even, so bushfires impacted our business then COVID, to have a team that is fast moving, um, everybody knows what they need to do and they get on and do it. So we, we work as a very, very um, smart, agile team. Uh, so first and foremost, I, I think my role is to uh, understand the core business and to understand what your membership needs of you. And that changes. It's changed dramatically. We were talking earlier today around what our members need from us now versus what they needed 10 years ago. The advocacy now is probably way more important than it was 10 years ago. The business was simpler 10 years ago. The business is now very, very complicated. More of our members do write something at home in their bedroom that ends up on a digital service and success in an overseas territory all in a very short space of time. Often they don't, they're not educated in how does all this work. So our outreach with our members, the breadth of service that we operate, we have a, a, a culture fund where we try and invest and support. All of that is much broader as a range of services to our members than, than we've ever provided before. And then as I said, you need the team to be able to make that happen and you need to do it as cheaply and as efficiently as possible. So there's, they are the KPIs. Um, you hear from your members loudly and clearly when you're not getting it right. Um, we've just done an engagement survey with our membership uh, just on over, I think it's 12 to 18 months ago, and we, we received about an 86% satisfaction rating from our membership. So, Amazing. you know, we, we go, that's pretty good. Obviously, there's still room to move. Um, the danger is when it's at that sort of level is, you know, it's easy for, to, for it to get worse. Um, but, you know, we look at that stuff really closely and go, what else could we be doing for our members? So when you're making those resource and capital allocation decisions, are you looking at the framework of um, how can we simply just generate more collection revenue for our members 
Um, and I guess that comes back to how do we be a net exporter? Is that how you're prioritizing or do you do things that are maybe not as a direct impact on that on that sort of core KPI and core generating revenue for your members, but you feel um, it's important for other reasons? Like how do you sort of make those decisions and how do you weight them? Yeah, I think um, the number one reason people you would presume are going to become a member of APRA and assign their rights to you is because they want to return on their rights. And um, so we take it very seriously that a the primary KPI for APRA is the financial return to its members. Otherwise, why would they join you? Um, that doesn't mean that the other services you provide around supporting people's careers, et cetera, aren't equally as important. And for many of our members who don't earn much money, some of those outreach services we provide are just as important. Um, so so we, it's interesting that, that question because we do debate that a bit ourselves. But, you know, if we're not collecting money and paying our members, then, you know, you can't cover the costs of what you're doing in any case or the costs become too expensive. So we are a revenue business, absolutely. Um, and we're a, a music rights management business. So we are in the business of managing rights and what that translates to is data so if you take away the um you know the the lovely atmospheric and context of working in the music industry we are a data business we are a big data business so we are investing heavily in our ability to manage massive quantities of data and that's what allows you then to efficiently deliver not just revenue back to your members but to do it in more bespoke detailed ways that will help the individual so you're working as a collective but you're also trying to keep your eye on so how do i ensure that the most money goes back to individual artists depending on where their music's being exploited mm. and just back to what you were saying you were saying you know the board really holds you to account when it comes to some of your kpis as well and the the APRA board is really fascinating to me because every board is made up of people that have agendas and you can't help that whatsoever uh, so the APRA board is made up of publishers and artists who, of course, would come in with their own agendas. So how much of that agenda is that, is, that comes through do you have to navigate? Because with, with our music industry, we have a small music industry. So any agendas that do kind of make it through, with APRA being one of the largest organisations that we have within our music industry, it really does have a big impact. Yeah. Yeah. Uh so maybe as a sort of when you when you just asked that question my first thought was how fortunate we are to have the board we have so you're quite right there are 12 directors on the APRA board there are six publisher directors representing both majors and independents so there's a range of publisher level publisher directors in, from different contexts uh, there are six composer songwriter members and we have one seat allocated to New Zealand so Beck Runga is the New Zealand director. Great choice. Great choice. She's, she's wonderful. Um, and you're quite right. People have different backgrounds and experiences and, and probably different agendas. But I can truly say that the APRA board is a group of people who have the APRA membership at heart. So when we are presenting to board, very much the, the context is what is the revenue position, how are we growing uh, the, the, the revenue in terms of servicing our membership, what services are we providing to those members, um, whether it's our awards program, our cultural fund, what we're doing in terms of export, our presence in international markets with representatives overseas, all of that has to pass the, I was going to say pub test or sniff test with the board as to how is this moving the dial forward for Australian and New Zealand songwriters, composers and publishers. So it's um, so that's their true north. Like everything has to, goes Ab against that. Absolutely, and you know we we have to be careful as a as a larger organisation about what we do get involved in and what we don't. I mean, you get involved in in everything. So yeah, you know, we're looking at issues like diversity, which um, you know, on first glance you could sort of go, well, is that a primary issue for our board to have to deal with? Well, of course it is. Every every company, every corporation is looking at issues around their corporate and social responsibility and the APRA board is no different. And diversity and making sure we're addressing the diversity of our membership is really important. Um, you know, we, we started looking at the issue of gender parity a couple of years ago and we, you know, it's going to take a while to move the dial on that but we're making really good headway in that space. But the board is very supportive of those, if you like, 
other than revenue aspects of the business that we bring to the table. And um, so, you know, it, it is a really great context to be able to have those conversations. I would dread, you know, working with a board that didn't think the breadth of those um, issues is important to an organisation like ours. You know, you're talking about the well-being ultimately of a creator. So it's not as black and white, sadly, as the royalties you're putting in their hands. You do have to look at what, what is the life cycle and ecosystem of a songwriter, composer and the publishers that, that they have relationships with. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it, it means our board meetings are uh, broad-ranging in topics discussed, um, but it's a, it's a really good board uh, it can be feisty, and that's a good thing. It keeps management on its toes. Mm. I imagine the conversations are just feeling more important than ever right now as well. Yeah, and look, you know, particularly, again, when you're talking about a year like COVID, to have the backing of your board to say, well, what do we need to do? And then it's incumbent on myself and management to say, well, this is what we think we need to do to navigate this. And having the you know unbridled support of the board is, is really paramount. You wouldn't want to be second-guessing their support when you're in a difficult year, mm. a difficult year like this. Well, okay, so APRA are essentially a licensed monopoly, though, in Australia. So in the US you've got two versions of collecting societies and in the UK there are three and in Australia we only have one. So have you ever felt a resistance to this, to being a monopoly, and has there ever been a conversation of a duopoly? Yeah, so look, not to get into terminology, but we're an authorised monopoly mm. rather than, than licensed. So, okay. um, so we voluntarily take ourselves off to the ACCC as the, the watchdog, the comp- competition watchdog, to say we, we're the only people in the market in this territory that do what we do. We collect the rights, so we've got all the rights, so people have to come to us in order to get a licence to do what they want to do. So we recognise ourselves that, that there's a fair degree of marketplace power in our hands and, you know, you, there's, that, that brings enormous responsibility. So the process of working with the ACCC and submitting ourselves to that process is to make sure that we are providing a public benefit. And when I say public benefit, that's a benefit to our, our members and also to our licensees. And the process we've just been through, we've just come through an authorisation process now, is to give the opportunity to both our members and licensees and anybody else, quite frankly, um, to express their view about our behaviour in the market. Uh, It's a very detailed process that we take really, really seriously. Um, And like any of those sorts of processes, you learn a lot about yourself. You might think you're doing well in a particular market, but lo and behold, you hear back from people to say, no, I'm not happy with how you've worked in that space. Um, Is this simil- similar to what public companies might do? If they have- no, not, not, not typically, but it, it is um, you, you, we, are, we, are without, you know, we are the only player in this space, in this territory. As you said earlier, in the US, there's actually four uh, organisations in the US who administer the sorts of rights that we administer. So as a songwriter or composer in the US, you can put your rights with any one of those four. You've got a choice. Um, and licensees have a choice in terms of who they deal with. So in that context, uh, it, it's handled differently. In the UK, there's only PRS, so that, that they're a bit like us, like the Australian, te- the Australian context. Um, and, and Did I get it totally wrong? I thought I said... <laughs> I thought I said... Two in the UK and no, three in the UK and two in the US. I just butchered that completely. Didn't yeah, but that's okay. Okay, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Anyway, there's multiples in other areas. All right, yeah. other territories are different. <laughs> but the, the norm, <laughs> when I say the norm, in most territories there is only one, and the reason for that is it is the most efficient. So you know, if it's costing us twelve or fourteen percent, you know, that range to administer rights. Uh, you don't necessarily want three or four different organisations, in my view, trying to do the same thing, all trying to work out how to distribute money efficiently back to members, everyone spending money doing the same thing. Uh, in terms of going to licensees, having licensees having to deal with a number of different organisations, in the Australian context, we've we've gone dramatically the other way to try and make it as simple as possible. So we uh, created One Music Australia, which was a joint licensing initiative with PPCA, which is the licensing arm for ARIA and the record industry, to say that when a hairdresser needs a licence, they don't need to deal with the complication of, well, I need an APRA licence for public performance for the musical work, and I also need one from PPCA for the sound recording, 
way too complicated. So we launched One Music in 2019 to say it should be a one-stop shop for most licensees. Keep it simple. And it also means that we can keep the administration to the bare minimum and minimise those costs, maximise the return going back to uh, songwriters on our side and, and recording artists on the PPCA side. So the that's a long-winded way of saying the, the monopoly piece is something that we, we never... Um, take for granted. We understand that we hold a monopoly position and it's incumbent on us to always prove we provide a benefit. Otherwise, um, you know, there would be an argument to say, well, why doesn't somebody else set up shop here? Mm. And, you know, somebody else could set up shop. There's nothing to stop uh, somebody else setting up another society here to do what we do. But in your opinion, songwriters would be financially worse off if that did happen? Look, look, obviously, um, if you're talking straight commercial terms, there's there's a lot to pull together to be able to set up another society that does the sort of thing that, that we do. But the US is the example of where it has happened. So, um, but look, you know, it's... And um, is it successful in the US? Do you look, you know, how is it going over there yeah, with four? But, yeah, but the, the, the US it has a completely different legal context and framework as well. Um, so there's the, the different societies over there. Uh, ASCAP has been around for 100 years and BMI has been around a long time as well. So there's a long history of different societies representing different interests, uh, and we, our history evolved differently. Mm. So uh, you know, obviously, the the arguments we put forward when people ask us this question is we say, look, we think this is the most efficient way of doing it, but you know, it, it's incumbent on us to convince you of that. And if you're not convinced, then keep putting the argument forward. Would you love for just another player to enter the market just so you can prove an, the amazing job you're doing and be like, <laughs> see? Not that easy. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> no, I'd hope people just believe that we're doing a wonderful job. And uh, yeah, look, I think things like um, your satisfaction rating from your members, your expense to revenue ratio, um, the fact you've launched one music that provides a better service to licensees, I, I would hope it's those things that are the measures of success, that the breadth of the constituency that we deal with look at and go, you know what? All in all, they do a fairly good job. Um, you know, and, and on top of that, you do the advocacy and everything else to try and help at a, a broader industry level. So, yeah, hopefully most people think we're doing a reasonable job. You took over from Brett Cottle two years ago, but he was in the role for 28 years. Is that right? That's right. That's a long time. Yeah, he's, his record there is safe. I think Dementia will <laughs> well and truly set in before yeah. I've been in the role that long. How would you describe Brett's legacy that he left at APRA? Well, uh, look, you know, I'm personally very grateful to Brett. He was a, a wonderful CEO to work for and a wonderful mentor. Um, I look back at my time working with Brett going, God, I hope I absorbed as much as I could, could have absorbed while he was here. Um, he was is a, a master negotiator. He is a, a brilliant communicator. Um and yeah, I, I, I feel very, very fortunate to work to have worked with Brett for so long, to have had such a seamless handover. Um, I think was generous of both Brett and very smart of the board um, to ensure that you know we, we did have a good handover. How long was it that you did? It was formally formally uh, six months from the time I knew I had the job to to Brett leaving. Um, but, you know, I've been able to pick up the phone and call Brett. I know where he is. I can track him down and go, <laughs> I didn't know that skeleton was in the cupboard. What, uh, what's the answer to that? And uh, so, <laughs> that yeah, we, we, we have a great relationship. And um, he's, uh, you may or may not know, but the international overarching version of APRA is called CZAC, which is based in Paris. And it's the overarching governing body, if you like, that sets the rules and guidelines by which we all operate. And uh, it's a very... Eurocentric based entity, as you would imagine, given it's based in Paris. As a, as a measure of how well Brett was regarded by the international community, Brett was chair of CZAC for a number of years. So he was enormously well regarded both here in Australia by the breadth and New Zealand by the breadth of our industry, but also enormously well regarded internationally. And do you, do you think you'll do the job for 28 years? Yeah, no. No? No. Um, <laughs> that's not from a lack of enthusiasm. It's just <laughs> recognising the mortality of my age now and add 28 years to that. Yes. <laughs>
tell us about your best day on the job so far as CEO. Uh, look, you know, and this can sound wanky to say, but uh, I, I absolutely love my job and I think I think my first day officially in the job was my most excited day. I mean, I, I felt incredibly privileged to get the gig and um, to, to sit at Big Coddle's desk uh, <laughs> once he'd left the building and think, wow, I've, I've this, you know, the, the trust and that's been bestowed on me to run this organisation is is huge. Uh, I take it's a it, great office too. That was <laughs> the only time I've been in there was when we did that first ever podcast for the Industry Observer that we did, and I had a little sneak around and I saw that it's got its own bathroom. Very it's cool. Got- <laughs> Love it. Yeah, well, you know, hopefully that's not seen as a ridiculous luxury. Um, but, you know, I'm happy to share it if anyone's desperate. That's, I thought the reason was because the hours are quite long and if you want to shower. That's it. That's it. I'm <laughs> often there to the wee hours. And, um, yeah, but, no, look, seriously, I, 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 as I said before, I work with a great team of people. Um, our business is really fast moving, even though we've been doing the same thing for nearly 100 years. Uh, the context is different every day. I think you have to look at COVID and challenges and other things that, you know, come up as all in the course of a day's work. And when you've got a good team, you can navigate through it. And and that's largely because of the legacy of Brett Cottle, to go back to your early, earlier question. The culture that we have as an organisation is huge. And I'm really keen to ensure that everyone working remotely doesn't undermine that culture that we do get people back in physical space and working together. I think it's, I think it's really important. Mm. And can you remember a worst day? You know, not every day is going to be a beautiful, wonderful experience. Look, the day I started doing number crunching as to how much money we will be down because of COVID was not a great day. Oh. And uh, so, look, you know, you, you always have. Of course it was in 2020. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> um, look, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think um, there, there are always hurdles and I think you do have to take the approach to that. Um, we are in a commercial business and every commercial operation has challenges on a daily basis. I think it's, I think it's really uh, a, a really sort of naive thing to think you're in this protected collecting society paradigm. It's not. We're in a competitive global context and so you should look at it in, in that space and make sure you've got momentum in your thinking and momentum in the way you're developing strategy and you're working as an organisation. So so if you're in that headspace, it means that, you know, if it's a great day, a bad day, well, whatever, you know, deal with it. It's, it's Can what you you're dealing unpack with how it is competitive? Yeah, so whilst I was, I was explaining before, there are affiliate societies all around the world, you know, increasingly our membership is more globally mobile. So... Uh, you know, many people pack up and move to the UK or move to the US, and Kid Leroy, might, for example, Kid Leroy, Kid CR. Leroy, absolutely, yeah. Yep. You know, we've got a, we've got, we think four hundred, about four hundred and fifty members living in the US, similar amount in the UK. Now, those members may well ask, now that I'm living in LA, why wouldn't I join one of the American societies and leave APRA? So, in that context, that's a competitive relationship because we say, well, we will administer your royalties, we will collect your money and provide you with a service second to none globally. You don't need to leave us and join an American society just because you've moved to the US. Um, So that's what I mean by competitive and you need to demonstrate you do provide world's best service. It's why we have somebody on the ground in London and in LA and in Nashville. You need to demonstrate that irrespective of where someone's career takes them, we've got their back and we're there for their entire career. And you've got a secret weapon at Abramcos, Millie Petriella, I think. Millie Petriella, yeah. Millie's the the person many people know, but I would say to you, I have a team of people like Millie Petriella who in their own fields and areas are very expert and it's the culmination of that team that allows, allows you to deliver that world's best service. And it doesn't matter if it's, business intelligence data for publishers or providing a specific service for members living in LA or whatever it might be, you need, you need to compete. So um, I think it's an important mindset and people at APRA or who've worked at APRA often talk fondly about the APRA family, which I think is wonderful. I think it's a really great thing. Um, but I do say, well, the family's important, but so is the Olympic team. And I think you should look around the room and go, wow, I'm, it's really cool that I'm sitting here you know, next to Luke or next to Poppy and I'm really lucky to be working with the best. And, and that's what we wanted at APRA as well. 
Mm. So finally, you said that Brett's legacy was he was a master communicator, um, he is a master negotiator, that he has an internationally renowned you know, legacy, well-liked across the globe. What do you hope your legacy will be? Um, look, I, you know, I think, um, I think being a good communicator is really important. I think um, you can never do enough to get out and explain what it is that we do. Um, I would like to think I can take that to another level. And I think government is part of that. I think having the government recognise that you are a key Australian industry. So for me, um, being able to achieve with the rest of our industry colleagues, because you can't do that stuff alone, That's that would be arrogant. So part of the communication piece is how you work with the rest of the industry and how do you collectively move the dial forward for everybody. So that's the entire breadth of the music industry. It's your entire membership. So for our members who don't earn much through to our members who earn a lot, that you're, you've communicated a vision for what you do as an organisation that people go, wow, I want to be part of that. And uh, I think, you know, going back to where we started, sort of trying to paint a vision for people to say we should aim to be a net exporter of music is a vision people can get their head around and can lean in and say, tell me more about that and and then you can strive to achieve it. So, you know, I, I would love to move the dial in that space. Uh, I would love to see um, as many Australians having a sustainable career as possible. I would love to see more Australian content across all media locally. Um, so I have a number of goals in that space that, you know, Hopefully when my tenure's finished, you can look back and go, well, we, we did move the dial a bit. Amazing. And it also says a lot about you that your goals for your legacy have nothing to do with you as a person, but what you achieved with a team for your members. Yeah. Dean, I'm, I'm very conscious that this format is pretty difficult and it's a lot easier to not come on than come on. So I'm really grateful for you coming. I think you killed it. Um, and I'm very, very excited about what you're going to be doing at APRA. It has been an awesome insight. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Thank Luke. You. Thanks, Bobby. Lovely to talk. Thanks so much.